to get myself situated now. You guys will have to wait for this. Okay. Is this cup, by show of hands, half empty or half full? Right? All right, so, so those of you in this room right now who would say this cup is half empty, raise your hand. Okay. Who would say this is half full? You know, that's pretty evenly split. I think half full might win by just a few. Um, you know, uh, it's kind of a silly question, right? To kind of think about, I'm going to kick these here. If they're, it's kind of a silly question to think about, right? Is this cup half empty, half full? Well, it's that perspective you have on it. And it's kind of a goofy, you know, average question that a lot of people get asked. Are you an optimist or a pessimist, right? And... You know, but it becomes a little bit more when we're not just talking about a glass, right? What if we're talking about the way in which we view our family? What if we're talking about the way we view our past, our potential future? What if we're talking about the way that we view uh, the place we live, other people around us? Um, What is our attitude towards those things? Right, I've um, kind of noticed this. I mean, this trend has been going on for a long time, longer than just a handful of years. But you know, like New Year is is kind of slowly shifted from a celebration of all the things past and a new year and a fresh start to, oh my gosh, I'm so thankful that year was over. Right, like it kind of like like goodbye twenty. 22, because it was terrible, right? And we give like these personalities to each year, and we're like, oh, that was the year of the pandemic and the killer hornets, and like, you know, and we're just like, goodbye, like, right? Like, we kind of have this like dismissive attitude because we're just like, ah, like this year stinks just as bad as last one. Um, I'm trying to use really PG language right now, Um, right? And so, Right, but that's the kind of attitude we've kind of had. Like we're just like, uh, like everything is just kind of getting worse, and it just kind of stinks, and it just keeps on going. And like, is it ever going to get back to normal? And we're like, oh, we're back to a new normal, and this new normal stinks. And like, um, you know, we're just all in this place of just kind of like feeling like everything is constantly kind of degrading. Things were always better back in the good old days, which the funny thing is is that we were probably saying the same thing back in the good old days. Um, I think that if we're honest, we live in a, in a state of kind of cynicism, right? Um, I, I think I've shared this once before, but it merits repeating. When I moved here, it was like the first week I was here. It was actually my first night I was here in Jamestown. I was unpacking and just like, you know, like you do when you move, you forget like that one or two key important things that are important to living in the place that you're now living. Um, like I forgot a shower curtain. I was not going to be able to take a shower if I didn't have a shower curtain. So I had to run the Walmart that night and get a shower curtain. I was checking out in the Walmart, and I was making polite conversation with the cashier. And, and, and she was like, oh, you know, and I was like, oh, I forgot, like, all this stuff. I just moved here. And she's like, oh, you just moved here? Why? <laughs> oh, I got, like, a job at this church. I'm super excited, you know. And she's like, did you buy or rent? I rented, and she was like, good, then you can leave quickly. I was like, ah. <laughs> like, She's like, it's a terrible place to live. I was like, wow, such a good welcoming party. Like, really boosted my spirits. Um, but that, like, but the amount of people that I have run into on some level who have that same attitude about this area, who are just like, ah. 
Jamestown. Yeah, like chocolates, just nah, right? Just kind of crouchy, right? A little bit cynical about the state of things. It's just getting so bad, right? How many times do we have that conversation with people as we're going about our day? And the thing is, is I believe that cynicism is false wisdom that leads to a known outcome, right? Cynicism is this belief that like, oh, like this is the end, like this is like nothing ever gets better, like everyone has bad motives, everything's the worst, right? It's this cynical attitude that just takes this position of constantly assuming the worst about everybody and everything. And the funny thing is, is that if you kind of take this kind of mentality, you can kind of come off as kind of wise, kind of like with it, knowledgeable, um, worldly, kind of just like, God, God, you know what's going on, right? Because you're just like, oh, you, you optimist, you just don't understand how naive you are, right? This is, cynicism is this constant refrain of like, Everyone else is naive. Anyone who disagrees with me is naive. I'm the only one who really knows. And so cynicism has this sneaky way of masquerading as wisdom, as a way to be wise to the way things really are. But really, it's a false wisdom. Really, at best, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy we speak over everything. Because, well, at least I will never be disappointed. True, but you also will be like you will also get the outcome that you're talking about. Right? If you want something different, like you're never going to see it because you're constantly setting yourself up for something else. You're setting yourself up for the worst possible outcome. And so the question is, and I think that cynicism is something that is pervasive, not just in culture abroad but I think is particularly strong here. It's particularly strong with the people that I interact with. Like in this community, I think cynicism has its roots. I don't think we are necessarily cynical about, um, you know, we're we're just, we kind of just get this sense of just like, yeah, well, that's the way it is. The amount of people, like, isn't that how it's going to be? That's the way it is. It's the way it's always been. Shouldn't expect anything different, right? Is there a different way? Is there a different way of living, different way of thinking, of seeing the world? Or are we doomed to just continually be this, you know, bearer? Do we have to be the Eeyore? Well, I guess that's just the way it is, right? Like, is there a different way? And I think there is. I think we're called to a different way. This week, we're going to be starting with, and we're going to continue on. We've been, we did an Easter series, and we talked about Easter people. And we talked about all the people in the gospel stories leading up to Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. And last week, we celebrated Easter. And this week, we're going to kind of continue on in this a little bit. And we're going to pick up post-resurrection. And we're going to talk about Thomas. Oh, Doubting Thomas. Um, Last week, Cameron mentioned Doubting Thomas, and he said, you know, Doubting Thomas gets a bad rap. And I kind of disagree. I I, I agree. I agree with Cameron. Um, Doubting Thomas, like, you know, I think think there's maybe some better names that we could have came up with. So we're going to right now just take a quick break of seriousness, and we're going to talk about just like, we're going to hear Conduit decide the new global name for which we're going to refer to uh, Thomas as. So I've got some options, and we can vote for him. Um, okay, first one is Pragmatic Tom. Um, I said what everyone else was thinking, Tom, and Realistic Tommy. All right, now those are the three options. Uh, we voted on them as a staff. And you guys are going to approve one of them. So, all right, raise of hands for, or no, you know what? Cheer. Cheer for Pragmatic Tom. Oh, wow. (laughs) Woo. All right. Next one. I said what everyone else was thinking, Tom. Okay, okay. 
Realistic Tommy. Okay, the long one wins. I said everyone else was thinking Tom. It's a really good thing I didn't commit to calling Thomas that throughout the rest of my sermon. Right? But we, all that goofiness aside, right? Um, Thomas, right, it's a somewhat familiar story. He has this moment of doubt, and, that, or, and, and now he's defined by it, right? Everybody refers to him as doubting Thomas. And so I want to look at Thomas. I want to see if, if maybe that's the, a fair name to give him. But also wonder and ask the question, why did the Bible decide to tell us that story? Why is Thomas included, Right? Thomas is only talked about in one of the four Gospels. The other Gospels kind of condense that story and don't go into the details. But John chose to. He chose to include it for a very specific reason. And I think it has the answer to the question of, is there another way? So we're going to turn. We're going to turn to the first time Thomas kind of shows up. And that's in John chapter 11. So this is John chapter 11. This is maybe a handful of weeks before Christ was uh, crucified, before Easter. And um, Jesus, his, Jesus' dear friend Lazarus has just died. Um, he's been called to come and take care of him. And the, Jesus is going to come and raise Lazarus from the dead, if you're familiar with the story. But as all this story has been going on and on, there's been continuing rumors that the, um, that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders of the time, are making plots to kill Jesus. And Jesus is deciding to go in that direction where, you know, all those people are that want to kill him. And so this is where Thomas kind of pops up. 11, I'm going to start in verse 14. Jesus then says, So he then told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. Let us go to him. And then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. And then the story moves on. So Thomas, also uh, known as Didymus. So, you know, modern conveniences that we take for granted, you know, like the microwave, um, but also last names. Um, like, if you ever wonder why the Bible's like goes like, oh, Thomas, this one, Simon, but not this one, this one. Like, you ever encounter all that? It's because there wasn't really a last name system to go by. It was kind of like, you know, first name, son of, or from this place, or this one. So Didymus, also known as Didymus, that Didymus is either a proper name, because it was used that way sometimes, but also could mean the twin. So it could be Thomas, you know, the one that's a twin, is essentially what the passage is saying, potentially. So Thomas, the one who says twin, says, let us also go that we may die with him. Okay, Thomas. Like, <laughs> like I don't know. Um, pessimistic Thomas? Like, he's just kind of like, okay, well, like, we're just going to, you know, and, and at least, you know, at least Thomas is committed Right? Like he's, he might be a little pessimistic about the outcome of the events that are about to happen, but he's committed to it. And he's, he's like, you know what? Like, if that's where Jesus is going, I'm going with him. I think this speaks well of Thomas's character, even if he might be a little pessimistic or obtuse. Um, but then that's not the last time that we hear about Thomas. Thomas pops up again in chapter 14. Chapter 14. This is Jesus, and he's sitting with his disciples, and he's at the Last Supper. So he's giving all of these words of encouragement because he knows what's going to happen tonight. He knows that he's going to be arrested, betrayed, that he's going to be denied, that he's going to be put on trial, and then he's going to be crucified publicly and die. He knows that. And so he's giving these encouragements to his disciples in their last meal together. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 14, says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you with me so that you may be where I am. 
You know the way to the place that I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Right? Jesus in the middle of this, like, deep like metaphor about his father's house and like my father is God I'm gonna go there we're gonna go make a house and then Thomas is just like I don't think I've ever been to your dad's house <laughs> like, I don't know I don't know where, where in Nazareth is that where am I supposed to go right and so Thomas is a little bit obtuse um, but then that sets Jesus up to say you know well I am the way Right? Jesus never, never uh, lacks an opportunity to teach, right? even if the setup was somewhat goofy. So I think Thomas is a rather sincere person. Right? All of these have to do, he doesn't want to leave Jesus. He wants to be by his side. He's a caring, he's a dedicated disciple. Right? See all of these things kind of coming through, even if he does have a way of kind of sticking his foot in his mouth. And so then let's get to the final story, the story that Thomas is most known for, in chapter 20. Chapter 20, verse 24. Now Jesus is already, he's resurrected from the tomb, and then he appeared to the disciples on Sunday, they were in a locked room. They were together. And then Jesus appeared among them, and he showed himself to them. And then he disappeared. And then this is what happens after that. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. He wasn't in the room the first time Jesus showed up. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and I put my finger where the nails are and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Right? Now, the thing is, if we stop for a moment and we think, the disciples didn't believe either when Mary came and told them. Right? Like, their first belief was like, they're, 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 they were doubt. They're like, what's happening? Someone stole the body, right? The disciples' first instinct was not to believe either. So Thomas's instinct is merely just a repeat of what the disciples went through, this moment of disbelief. But Thomas goes further by making this statement, unless I see the nail marks, unless I put my finger in there, unless I can put my hand in his side, I will not believe. Can you imagine the, the place where Thomas finds himself? Like, let's think about this. Jesus was his rabbi, his teacher, his friend, someone he spent years with. He loved Jesus dearly. He, wanted, he was willing to go with Jesus even when it meant the risking of his own life. He was scared and worried that Jesus was going to go somewhere and he wasn't going to know how the way to get there. Thomas cared about Christ. And now all the other disciples are saying, Jesus is alive. And Thomas is saying, you're just playing some sort of cruel trick on me because the guy I know, I saw, he died. And I don't want to think about the fact that I'm trying to undo the grieving process that I'm going through with my dearest friend. And so I can hear in this, is this, this, this statement of unless, unless I see these things, unless I'm able to touch him, there's no way I can believe this. I hear pain, I hear grief. And so a whole week later, a week passes by of the disciples potentially just telling, Thomas, you got to believe us. And Thomas is like, no, I, I can't. It hurts too much, perhaps. And a week later, his disciples were in the house again. So they're in the house again. And Thomas was with them. The doors were locked. So it's exactly the same circumstances the first time Jesus showed up to his disciples. On the same day, just a week later, the room and the doors locked. And Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Right? Jesus pops up and displays himself. 
not just among them in a locked room, but also showing that he knew what Thomas had said a week ago. And he offers himself to Thomas. And it's not clear in the text as to whether or not Thomas actually um, takes Jesus up on that offer. I think a lot of times we have in our minds that Jesus or that Thomas did go up and stick his finger in the holes and touch Jesus. Um, I think partly is that is because there's that famous painting that is probably in everyone's head right now. Um, I forgot to put it up there. But there's this famous painting, and it, I, I, I went to look at it. I was like, you know, that's like because that's the picture I had in my head. I always had assumed Thomas had followed through with the demand that he had made. But the text doesn't say it at all. It says Jesus offers it. And that painting shows it, but the painting has a small detail that I I didn't notice until I went and looked at it again. If you look it up, you just look up Doubting Thomas painting, it'll be the first thing on Google that pops up. But when you pull it up, you'll see that Jesus is actually grabbing Thomas's arm and pulling Thomas's arm into his side. And I think that's a beautiful visual way of saying what Jesus has said here. I am offering myself up to you. Now, I don't think the text demands that, G- that Thomas die. I think, I, think a bet, I think taking the text just as it is, I think Thomas saw Jesus and said, I don't need any of that that I had said previously. You are my Lord and my God. G- Thomas makes this proclamation and this clear understanding that Jesus is not just a prophet not just a good teacher. He's not just someone who said some good things. He's not just his good friend. He's not a carpenter from Nazareth. He is the Lord God incarnate who came to take away the sins of the world and is raised from the dead. And then Jesus turns to Thomas, and this isn't a diss on Thomas. He just says, Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. He's not saying, like, shame on you, but he's saying you have something that others do not. The opportunity to see me, to touch me, to eat a meal with me. But blessed are those who do not have that opportunity. And that is speaking to you and I, you and me, in this room today. All Christians post-Jesus' ascension sit in this sentence of blessed are those who have not seen, because we have not seen Christ with our eyes, but yet we have believed. Verse 30 goes on to tell the whole purpose of this entire book of the Bible. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name. Thomas was written about in the book of John as a demonstration to us of what it looks like to have faith. Because I think if we're tempted, I think if we're tempted, I think we're tempted to be like Thomas. I think we're tempted to kind of come with skepticism and demands of proof. And John is saying, look, the disciple Thomas did that, but that's, that's not what we're called to. Jesus makes a promise of blessing to those who are willing to accept and have faith without having seen. Faith is a huge thing. I think if we were to kind of talk about, like there's a couple things that are major things about who we are meant to be. Oh, there's the picture. So if you can see... You've got Jesus there on your far left. And then this hand that's kind of in the middle, he's reaching and taking Thomas's hand and pushing it into the side where Jesus was stabbed. It's, a, it's this picture of Jesus offering himself in compassion, of willing to humble himself to come and see this. Like if you've ever like, you know, it's, it's, this isn't Jesus showing off his scars. This is Jesus coming and humbling himself and saying, whatever it is you need, Thomas, I'm offering to you. I'm willing to meet your unless statement. Because he desired for Thomas to know and to believe. Stop not believing. 
please believe. And so, who are we to be as Christians? Like, we're, remember where we started talking about living in this world of cynicism, this place of despair, this place of things are always getting worse. Who are we supposed to be? And really, like, I think, I sometimes wonder, and I've been wondering this morning, are we as Christians really, do we, do we seem different to the world? Or have we become just a subculture of the world? Are we a set-apart and different people? Or are we just a subcategory of people? I think the gospel and who Christ calls us to be is for us to be oriented in such a way that is so radically different than everyone else. There are three virtues that the Bible talks about. Three things that we are meant to live our lives by. And I want to just show those briefly from Scripture. So we're going to turn into New Testament to 1 Thessalonians. I'm going to go to 1 Thessalonians um, chapter 1. I'm going to look at verse 2 through 3 here. says, this is Paul writing to the Thessalonians. And this is what he has to say about this church. This is how he describes this group of believers. He says, We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your favor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope. Did you catch that? So remember the work Remember before our God, the work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul continues that theme. If we flip a chapter forward, two chapters, a couple chapters forward, into chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians. Verse 1 of chapter 5 says this, Now, Brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, while people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come upon them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers or sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should not surprise you like a thief. You are children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness." I'm going to... Hallelujah! Yes. Yes, absolutely. Right? We're meant to be different. We're not children of the dark. We're children of the day, children of the light. I'm going to pause here real quick because this is talking about a topic that Christians love to talk about, and that's the end times, right? Like, end of things, Christ coming back. I want you to notice the first verse. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we need not write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Right? What does Paul say? Paul says, look, I'm not going to write to you about when, where, or how, or the specifics of how this is going to happen, because we know it's going to happen and everyone's going to be surprised. That's what the Bible says about that. If you find anyone else who says if there's a date, or there's a moon, or there's anything else, they didn't read this verse closely enough, right? That's what the Bible teaches about it. When we get into this place of drilling down into like reading the signs, trying to figure out the stars aligning, like it's not, not at all what the New Testament taught. It's not what Paul taught right here. That's very plain to me. He, what he goes on to does, he does say, he says like we're not in darkness and in all of that. What he's getting into is he's not saying... He's not trying to say, well, you're going to know what's going to happen. He's saying, no, rather, you're not going to know, but you should be living as if you were ready. You should be living a different life. You should be living out in the day. You should not be living in the dark, in hiding, with lies and deceitfulness and living in sin. You ought to be living in the day, out in the light, as children of God, living a different life. And how does he kind of describe that life? 
we're gonna get, I'm gonna pick back up in verse seven. It says, "For those who sleep sleep at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, faith and love as a breastplate, and hope of salvation as a helmet." Right? Again, faith, hope, love. Let's turn a book backwards to Colossians. We'll go to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, I'm going to start in verse 3. Colossians 1 verse 3 says, again, how Paul describes this church. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and the love you have for all people of God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel. And then finally, if that has not proven it enough, I will turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This is a famous passage. If you've been to a wedding, you've probably heard this passage, right? It starts off and and says, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. It goes on and on to say, If I can do all of these things, but I have not love, it is all for naught. And then in verse 12, we're going to jump down where he is summarizing his point. In verse 12, it says, For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, and then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Verse 13, Now these three things remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. The Bible is abundantly clear on this point. I talked about this a little bit, on Wednesday in our Wednesday night class. And I mentioned that all too often, Christians like to define maturity by other things. We want to say that, well, I'm a mature Christian because I can flip in my Bible really fast. Or I'm a mature Christian because I know a lot of theology or I read a lot of books or I listen to a lot of podcasts or I pray really long. Right? We come up with all of these reasons and things of like what a mature Christian is supposed to look like. The Bible really only has one key criteria, and it's really the first and most priority one is do you love God and do you love your neighbor? Those are the priorities. Those are the marks of a mature Christian. And in addition to that, come alongside that of the characteristic and the virtues of faith and hope. Faith, hope, and love. That's how we ought to be known. It's how we ought to be described. It really frustrates me. It really frustrates me that the world seems to know us by other things. When we're talked about by news articles and other things like that, we're talked about like a sub-people group defined by our political opinions by our, the way we vote, we're defined by um, certain statistics, we're not defined by people who are marked by faith, love, and hope. That bugs me, because that's how Christ has called us to be known. That's how Paul describes those churches. Are we people of faith, love, and hope? And today I'm focusing on faith, because I think it's something we're lacking, I was standing out the other, week, the other week when I thought about this sermon as I was kind of reflecting, and I was noticing in my own heart a lack of faith for the people around me. So I was looking around, and I was like, is anything ever going to change here? Do things get better? Do I believe that the people in my life who are in stuck in cycles... Do I actually have faith that they can and will change? Or better yet, do I have faith that Christ can and will change their lives? I'm, I'm fighting for faith. I'm fighting for hope over top of a spirit of despair and cynicism. 
We are called to be people of faith, hope, and love. That's what a mature Christian looks like. That's what a church looks like. That's what we ought to be known for. I think I have a couple reflections on this. First is, is that faith is commendable and unavoidable. I think all too often we get into this place of trying to make Christianity sound like a scientific religion. Try and say like, oh, like all these things and all the reasons why it's really reasonable to be a Christian. And that's absolutely true, right? I'm not dashing or, or you know, being negative about all the apologetic books and things out there that are meant to show that Christianity is intellectually rigorous and philosophically sound. But I think sometimes we like to come and we like to overplay that card a little bit, and we like to pretend that, well, you don't really need any faith to be a Christian. Like, it's just the rational thing. Well, no. Faith is unavoidable in the Christian life. I think sometimes we try and avoid hard questions. I was sitting, having coffee with somebody one time, and they were saying, they were like, why? I I mean, it was like the perfect pastoral setup, right? They turned to me, and they were like, Luke, like, you're a pastor. Like, why do bad things happen to good people? And, you know, through my head was a thousand different things. I was like, oh, well, we could talk about, like, Adam and Eve, the garden, the choice, and free will. Oh, 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 we could talk about, like, um, the consequences of human actions. We could talk about um, God is the author of all things and how he works all things to good. And I was just like, you know what? Like, because I've read all those books. I've heard all those arguments. I've heard everybody on different sides. But I've also read the book of Job. We're at the end of the book of Job. Job asks the question, why? And God says, you don't get to know because I'm God and you're not. And I, had, and I told, instead of giving the guy a really slick, rehearsed, apologetic answer, I said, you know, like there's a whole bunch of things I could tell you about that. But the simple answer is, is that we don't know why bad things happen to good people. And the reason is, is because we're creation, we're people, we're not God. We're called to come and to know God, and God actually knows us and is with us in a special way. We're in the valley when we're not on the mountaintop. That God often reveals himself most clearly through our most difficult times. And that's a mystery. And I don't have the answer to that, except to know that God is close to you if you're in the middle of a hard time. He's calling you and he's beckoning you and reminding you that he's right there beside you, right? That's a response of faith, not a response of rational reasoning and argumentation. I think sometimes we're too afraid to give that honest answer because we we don't want to say, we don't want to admit that you need faith to believe in God. Well, guess what you do? You need to have faith in the story and the witness that Christ came, died, and rose again from the dead. I'm resting my faith on the eyewitness accounts of the Gospels that these men wrote down, told us what happened, and then know that they went and spent the rest of their lives telling the rest of the world that story, and then they were all martyred and killed for it. Thomas, the doubter, the one who doubted Christ's resurrection, went on to start the earliest Christian church in India and Asia, and went and was martyred there for them. Thomas took the gospel to the edges of the known world. That's where we're called to. We're called to have faith. And when we have faith, that is something that the Bible commends. Too often the world, I think we've bought the lie of the world on this. The lie is, is that well, faith is, faith is weak. Faith is for dumb people. Faith is secondary. We've, we've chosen to believe the rational thought that faith is somehow not a good characteristic to have because it means we're gullible. No, I think faith is something that's courageous. I think it's commendable. I think it's what we're called to. Thomas believed in the death of Jesus, but not in the resurrection. 
And my question is, is do we sometimes do the same thing? Because we need to have a faith both in Good Friday and in Easter. And by that, I mean that sometimes we get so fixated on Jesus died for my sins, and there is forgiveness. Absolutely. 110%. I will say that every time I get up here. Christ died for your sins. He has made a way for you to be restored through his death on the cross. He took your sin and brokenness, nailed it to the cross, and took it to the grave. But sometimes, that's where we stop. And that's not where the story stops. The story continues on with Christ coming out of the grave, leaving what he took into the grave behind, leaving the grave clothes behind and coming out in newness of life and new physical body and newness of spirit and proclaiming the life that I now have is the life that all of you have by faith in me. Christ said, "Believe. blessed are those who believe in me, even though they have not seen, for they will have life in me. Sometimes we get into this place where we're just like, yep, Jesus took care of my sins, so I'm not going to go to hell. It'll be all good, like, you know, like fire insurance, and then we're done. And we forget to pick up the fact that Jesus has given us new life that's not just going to start when we get into heaven, but starts now. Eternal life has a beginning, and that's when you say yes to Jesus, and then you start living into that, and that's where we're called. The newness of life is beginning now. It's only is a dimly mirror. It's only a place of, of faith and unclarity, but it's absolutely going to be seen clearly at the end of things. At the end of all things, when we're not having church anymore and the things that are going on in your to-do list, the things you were so concerned about have finally gone away, only three things will remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Christ has called us to that kind of life to be that kind of people. We need to stop putting unless in front of your faith. Thomas came to that place and he was like, unless I see this, how often do we put a precondition on our actions of faith? You know, I, I will begin to kind of follow Christ when this happens. I will, I will begin to um, live a costly discipleship for Jesus only when this happens. We put these, unless this thing happens, I don't know that I'm going to be full in on this whole thing. Right? I think sometimes we put unlesses in front of our faith. We say, well, once, once God really starts doing something, then I'll get on the bandwagon. But Christ is calling us to faith in the midst of unsuredness, in the midst of things not being where they are yet. I want to turn to the most famous passage when it comes to faith. We're going to go to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, verse 1, says this, Now faith is the confidence in what we hope for and the assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what is visible. It starts in Genesis. The writer of Hebrews is saying, look, this is what faith is. Faith is confidence and assurance in the things that we do not see. And that is the entire story of the Bible. From the beginning in Genesis, and he goes through each and every stage and era of the Bible, and he says they and their actions were based on faith based on seeing that God was calling them out somewhere. Abraham left his home country to go out into a new place that God would show him, a place that he had not yet seen. Abraham believed with faith that God was going to make him into a nation, even when he had yet to see a firstborn. 
right? We can go through that whole chapter. I'm going to skip forward. I'm going to skip all the way to verse 39 in chapter 11. It says this, These, summarizing everyone that they've just talked about, were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. He's saying all of these people who lived faith, all of these heroes that you read about in the Bible, each and every single one of them lived a life of faith even though the completion of what they were hoping for did not yet come. They were looking for and hoping for to Jesus, but Jesus did not come until the New Testament. But they lived a life of faith regardless. Jesus calls us to trust him in the gap between what it is and what it is he's accomplishing. Jesus has called us to be people of the gap. I don't mean the clothing store. He's called us to be people who stand in the gap of where things are and what he is doing and where he is calling things to be. Christ calls and describes his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, as a mustard seed, something that starts really small, but when planted, grows into a large tree. That is what we're called to be, is we're being called to be stewards of the kingdom, to interact and to see the world and the people around us through the lens of faith, hope, and love. But that's what we ought to be carrying with ourselves, not cynicism, not anger, not despair, not giving up. Because our God has not stayed dead. Because Christ did not stay in the grave. If Christ had stayed in the grave, sure, despair. But he did not. He came out three days later and brought newness of life. Therefore, we ought to be people who live into that newness of life, who are people of faith, hope, and love. Those three things ought to be the things that describe us as a church, us as individuals, how we live our life, how we see people, how we interact with people. I want to see that in my heart. I don't know about you, but I want more faith. I want faith to believe that things, the way things are right now is not the way that they will always be. I want to have faith that God can move mountains in people's lives, that God can bring breakthrough into people's lives, and that God is displaying and working and active in his glory among us right now. That's my desire for faith. So this week, I want to encourage us to to reflect on that, to perhaps orient ourselves around that truth. And so I wrote us a short prayer that we could perhaps say, I will pray here for us as a congregation. But I'm also going to encourage you to be saying this prayer. Go ahead and put it up on the screen. Is This prayer is for us to say, maybe... Maybe as you start your day, maybe you can write this down, you can put this on your mirror as you're getting, brushing your teeth, you can just read this prayer. Maybe you put it um, in, in the middle door of your desk, right? Maybe you put it as the background of your screen for, for a day. Every time you see it, every time you have a transition in the day, maybe just starting out your day and saying, Lord Jesus, fill me with your Holy Spirit that I might see with and act with faith hope, and love. That we might have that shift, not just in our heads, but in our hearts through the work of the Holy Spirit. That we might be filled with the Holy Spirit in such a way that we see the world differently. That we act in the world differently. Might that be a, just a beginning shift of saying, Lord, what would it look like if I saw this situation with faith, hope, and love? How do you see this situation? Lord, what are you calling me to do? Are you calling me to step forward in courage some way? 
I think if we just begin to pray this and seek this earnestly in our own hearts, I think God will be faithful to honor our faith. God is calling us into a grand adventure into what he wants to do. If you would, please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we repent of holding a spirit of cynicism, of doubt. Lord, we repent of putting up unless requirements in front of our faith. Lord, I ask that you would fill us with your spirit today. Lord, that you might send your Holy Spirit in a unique way upon us here at Conduit. Lord, that you might grant us each mustard seeds of faith. Not just faith for our own selves, but faith for our neighbors, faith for our cities, faith for our families, faith for our world. Lord, I pray that you would give us fresh eyes to see you. Lord, that you might allow us to see things the way in which you see them. Lord, I pray that you would give us courage to act in faith. Lord, that you would give us a vision for where it is that you are going, what it is that you are doing, the work that you are calling us to and that you would give us the faith to stand in the gap. Lord Christ, we surrender ourselves to you and ask that you would do the work only you can do in our hearts. In the name of Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, amen.